This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge, and I'm going to tell you a little story about what happened to me on the weekend. I'd been away for a few days. I had come home, I was unpacking the car, and I dropped a thermos of tea on my foot, and now I have a sore toe. So what do you think caused my sore toe? Well, the answer closest to hand is that dropping the thermos on my foot caused my sore toe. But then I could plausibly argue that the reason I'd taken a thermos of tea in the car in the first place was that there had been nowhere along the way to buy a decent cup of tea, and so that was the cause, and so you can blame all those horrible fast food outlets that don't serve drinkable tea. Or I could argue that the reason I was travelling was to attend my parents' birthday lunch, and so that was the cause of my sore toe. Blame mum and dad. The difference between a cause and a contributing factor can be difficult to determine, and while it doesn't much matter in trivial cases like my sore toe, it can matter quite a lot when it comes to things like determining cause of death. Well, I'm talking about all of this with Kate Lynch, who's a philosopher of science and postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sydney. We talked on the program a couple of years ago about genetic determinism and what it means to say that our genes cause certain outcomes. That was a really interesting conversation, and I'll put a link to it on the Philosopher's Zone website. More recently, Kate Lynch has been working on death certification and the problems that come up when you try to establish exactly why someone has died. So let's get into that. Kate, welcome back to the program. Hi, thanks for having me again. I want to begin with David Hume because he's the first philosopher I always think of when it comes to causation. And I love his contention that cause and effect, which we generally take to be one of the fundamental laws of the physical universe, that that's actually this rather mysterious thing for which we have no conclusive proof or evidence. What is Hume on about there? And and do you agree with him? Yeah, so Hume has a very sceptical idea when it comes to causation. And that's just that, you know, Given what we can observe, all we can really observe is correlations, is sort of associations or regularities between things that we call causes and effects. Um, and so he thinks based on, you know, the fact that this is all that we can observe out there, um, that we don't have good grounds to say that there's some sort of more fundamental relationship, such as causal relationships. Um, and so he, you know, his stance is basically that what we can observe these, you know, something occurring and then something else occurring, the cause and then the effect is no different to just observing correlations. Um, and that's obviously a problem because, especially for science, because there's this, you know, big push in science to distinguish between correlations and causal relationships. Um, so I'm not quite as sceptical as Hume. There has been a bit of progress since Hume thinking about causation in slightly different ways. And one of the most successful accounts or the most popular accounts in the philosophy of science are counterfactual accounts of causation. So rather than um, just observing one particular event and then another particular event and inferring causation, you need to think about what would have happened if these events hadn't occurred. So, for instance, there's actually there's a really good website, for, if any of the listeners are interested, um, called Spurious Correlation. Uh, which has these great instances of things that look like they co-occur regularly, but they're not actually causal. Um, and one of the examples on there is this correlation between Nicolas Cage movies and drownings in the United States. So for every year, the more Nicolas, more movies that Nicolas Cage makes that year, the more drownings there are in the US. And there's this really quite tight correlative relationship. So that this would kind of fit Hume's picture of this regularity between one event and another event. Uh, but we don't think that 
his movies are causing people to drown. At least I don't think there's any positive mechanism that the movies are so bad that they're increasing drownings in the United States. They're pretty bad. I think it needs to be established that they are <laughs> yeah, pretty bad. Yeah, perhaps more research needs to be done on that one. Um, but but you can kind of think, you can distinguish that from being causal if you don't think there's a causal relationship by thinking, okay, well, what would have happened if he hadn't made those movies? If he'd made less movies that year, would there have been less drownings? And that's this counterfactual reasoning, what would have happened otherwise? Um, and so that's quite often how philosophers think about causation. Um, and in philosophy of science, which tries to capture what scientists think about and the way scientists are using causal concepts, there's quite a popular version of the counterfactual account, which is the interventionist account of causation, uh, which is basically you can identify causal relationships by things that if you could, if you manipulated them, if you changed something about the cause, then you'd expect to see a change in the effect. Um, and this is quite commonly what scientists do. They conduct experiments where they manipulate one thing, they hold all the rest of the things as fixed as possible so that it doesn't interfere with the experiment. And if they see a change in the outcome, they go, oh, okay, that's causal. There's a causal relationship. So I think we've made a little bit of ground, at least in science and philosophy of science, on that very sceptical idea about causation. We're going to be talking about causes of death in this conversation, but by way of introduction to that, and perhaps more generally, can we talk first about some of the problems that come up when we're trying to determine the cause for any number of effects, right? Causal selection, because John Stuart Mill wrote about this. What were his insights into the difficulty of pinning cause down? Yeah, so, so in addition to this issue about how you define cause and how you identify causes, which is sort of that discussion around Hume, um, there's also this issue that whenever you say you have an effect of interest, there looks like there's many, many different causes that you could pick. And as we go about out the world, we tend to just focus on one or a few of those things as the cause or the most important cause. Um, and John Stuart Mill um, first brought this problem up as the problem of causal selection. Um, so he uses this example which relates to death. So say that a man slips on a ladder and dies and you ask the question, well, what caused his death? Um, the first thing people are likely to say, oh, it was the event of him slipping on the ladder. Um, but of course, in that scenario, there are other things that you could also point to as causes and they fit, you know, these counterfactual accounts as well. So you might think actually, you know, the man being the weight that he was caused him to die in that way. Um, and if things had been otherwise, say he'd been lighter, then he might not have died. Um, so it might not have produced that same effect. Um, and then you can also trace things back in time. So if the man slipped on the ladder and then died, you might think, okay, well, why was he climbing the ladder in the first place? Perhaps he was cleaning out his gutters. Why were the gutters full? Perhaps there was a storm. And again, if you apply these counterfactual accounts and you say, you know, what would have happened if things had been different? Well, if there had been no storm, he might not have had to clean his gutters, he wouldn't have slipped and he wouldn't have died. And, you know, you can kind of trace things back in time almost infinitely. If if his parents hadn't met at the time that they did and, you know, produced him, then he wouldn't have existed and he wouldn't have slipped and he wouldn't have died and you end up with these infinite amounts of causes for any given effect. And that's a real problem for philosophers of science when they, you know, there's these lovely theories now about how to distinguish causes from correlations, uh, but there's still quite a lot of debate and disagreement about how you pick out the most important causes, or if you can ever be justified picking out some causes as more important. So philosophers have been thinking about this problem then of, of how to select one primary cause from a number of possible candidates. One of the suggested guidelines has to do with what's considered to be abnormal versus normal. Can you run me through that one? Yeah, so that seems to correspond quite well with um, a lot of the ways that people causally reason. Um, so one example is if you wanted to talk about what caused the match to light, 
Um, it might be, the, was it the striking of the match or was it the presence of oxygen in the atmosphere? Well, it's very normal that there's oxygen in the atmosphere. It's almost always there. Uh, but it's not quite as normal that you would strike the match. And so people would generally pick out the match striking. Um, and this kind of, this seems to line up with this cause of death example. So the man on the ladder, you know, the abnormal thing there is his slipping. Although if you trace things back in time, it might also be abnormal that there was a storm and that the gutters filled up. So you can still end up with lots of different causes when things are abnormal. Um, and when it comes to death, there is this literature um, in the philosophy of science and philosophy of medicine trying to figure out a good way of defining disease, which has also relied on abnormality. Uh, so Christopher Bors has this theory, the biostatistical theory of health and disease, where a disease state is defined as an abnormal state. Um, and you can see that kind of corresponds in a lot of uh, lot of instances. You know, if somebody's got cancer, we think of that as abnormal from their normal state. Uh, but it also has a lot of limits. So if you're thinking about statistical abnormality, then you might end up with these situations. Um, so, you know, for instance, a pandemic where the majority of the population has some sort of disease or has something that might cause death. Um, and so it's normal, it's statistically normal, but we'd still want to pick that out as the cause, the most important cause. Um, you also get into to issues with what's normal for who. So um, if I started dribbling or if I had the inability to walk, that would obviously be very abnormal for me. Uh, but that's quite normal, say, for a baby or a one-year-old. My son is quite dribbly. Uh, he can walk now, but, you know, there was a time where it was quite normal that he couldn't walk. Um, and so it's it's normal for him. And you get into this issue of, you know, what's called the reference class problem, where you've got to say, what's normal for who? Is it based on age? Uh, does sex come into it? How do you divide up these reference classes? The boundaries will always seem arbitrary. Um, and then, of course, when it comes to normality, we also have these things like diseases of, of old age, which are statistically normal, uh, but we still think of as important causes of death and important things that we want to pick out as diseases. So while abnormality does line up quite a lot of the time with what we think is important when it comes to death and disease, it doesn't seem to sufficiently pick out all the things we think of as important. So when we look at this problem of how to justify selecting one particular cause, there's also a potential solution in examining features of the relationship between cause and effect, which is a really interesting one because it has useful applications in the field of genetic science. Tell me about that one. Yeah, so one of the fields that philosophers of science have been talking about this issue for a while is is genetics because in the study of genetics we do seem to pick out genes as the most important cause even though there are of course lots of other things that go on in your body uh, which are responsible for the way that traits are expressed um, and so there's been this discussion you know should there be causal parity is everything just as important as the genes you know the other things in your cells like RNA polymerase should they be just as important or is there something really special about the way that genes produce their effects um, and one of the possible contenders for this is this notion of specificity so one of the things that people tend to think of as really special about genes is that they're very specific to their effects. So you have a gene, which is a sequence of DNA, which is like a little code, um, and these codes can be thousands of base pairs long. These are the ATCG parts of DNA. Um, and quite often they correspond to very specific kinds of proteins, which is the product of a gene, and then they build up to produce the things we're interested in, physiological and behavioural traits. Um, and so people have discussed, okay, maybe specificity is this really important feature of a causal relationship. So another a non-genetic example of specificity is the sort of the old-fashioned way you used to change the radio station, where you'd have a dial, where you'd 
tune just you know sometimes you have to be really careful about tuning that radio dial to get exactly the station you want um, and that's quite specific the way that you tune that to get the radio station you're interested in whereas an on and off switch has just got a single on off it's not specific to the effect even though they're both important to producing the same effect so you might say the reason that you're on this particular radio station is because you tuned the dial not because you switched the on and off switch you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Kate Lynch, a philosopher of science at the University of Sydney. We're talking about causation and the difficulty of getting a fix on exactly what makes something happen. We've laid some really good groundwork here, I think, to talking about causes of death, which is something you've been working on recently. When someone dies, the information about the cause of death is presented in the form of a death certificate. So what does a death certificate look like? How does it set out the cause of death? Death certificates vary across the world. But there is this section in the death certificate, which is the the part where you document the causes of death, which is uniform across the whole world. Every UN member state has exactly the same part on their death certificate. Um, And the reason for this is this consistency means that we can compare mortality statistics. Um, So we can see what people are dying of here in Australia compared to other places in the world. Um, And that's really important information for informing important kind of public health policies and research. Um, and what's documented on the death certificate is uh, the first thing is the immediate cause of death. So just before someone dies, what was it that um, caused them to die? Um, and then underneath the immediate cause of death, doctors, and it's often doctors in Australia who fill these out, they can list the chain of events that led up to that immediate cause. And that chain of events traces all the way back to the underlying cause of death. Um, and this is kind of the crucial bit of information on a death certificate because it's the underlying cause of death that is used for these mortality statistics that are really important. They inform most of the public health funding around the world. So, you know, what kinds of research is funded, what kinds of things are subsidised, what kind of public health initiatives are implemented. It's often based on what people are dying of. And so the way we think about what people die of is this underlying cause of death, which is the first cause that initiated the train of events leading to the death. Um, and then there's also room on the death certificate uh, to document the, any contributing causes. So these are things that were not part of that chain of events from underlying to immediate, but anything else going on in the causal background that doctors also think are relevant. Right. So it sounds very comprehensive, very thorough. And it sounds like death certification is one of those things that should just be a, a hard science, if you like. But it isn't, right? Or, or it doesn't seem to be. There's a lot of error and disagreement in death certification. So let's talk about that. How much error is there and what do doctors commonly disagree about? Well, a lot of the time the literature reports on there being error in death certification, but but when you really look into it, it's not just error, but it's disagreement. And some people are calling that error because they think, you know, one perspective uh, should be prioritised over another. Uh, but if you have, you know, the same medical records given to two different doctors and you ask them to document what the underlying cause of death is, quite often they'll disagree. Um, and these disagreement rates vary anywhere from sort of 30% to 60% in a lot of these experiments. Um, and if you ask doctors about, you know, what's going on when you document death certificates, a lot of them will say, well, the form doesn't really capture what's biologically going on when we see a patient die. Um, and one of these limitations seems to be that there's this requirement for a single underlying cause of death. 
So every patient, um, you can only ever document one single underlying cause of death, a single cause that starts that initial train of events leading to death. Uh, but of course, a lot of the time things are more complicated than that. There's lots of different causes that um, it's very hard to say which was the underlying cause. Um, and these causes can also reciprocally interact, making you know more, some things more severe. Um, and so doctors feel like they can't adequately put down what they think happened when this person died. They're just trying to constrain things into this form. Well, given the broad acknowledgement of the problem, why is it that a single cause of death has to be nominated on the death certificate? Why can't you have, you know, a, a descriptive paragraph, if you like? Yeah, well, um, so there's this sort of trade-off, I guess, between getting things that are biologically accurate and consistent um, and also things that are achievable because filling out a death certificate is just one small part of a very busy schedule for a doctor. And there's also the complications and how you might compile mortality statistics. So if some patients have three causes of death recorded and some patients just have one, uh, you don't want that first patient to count three times towards the mortality statistics. Uh, so some people have thought about um, weighting the different causes of death so that, you know, you might it might be 30% for one cause, uh, 50% for another, 20% for another. But again, that just adds complications to what the doctors have to do, um, especially when a lot of the time when people die, there's quite a lot of uncertainty. So one of the other reasons for this disagreement um, and so-called error is that a lot of the time doctors just don't know exactly what the underlying cause was or causes were. And so they, they put their best guess and the best guess from one doctor might be different compared to another doctor. There also seems to be quite a lot of pressure in the medical system to not put unknown. So there is, there is an option on death certificates to put unknown. There are strict requirements about the things you can put down. But if you put unknown, that often means there's going to be an investigation to make sure that, you know, there wasn't any sort of medical error or foul play. Um, sometimes an autopsy will be involved. And doctors, for their own reasons and for the protection of their patients and the patient's families, quite often want to avoid those complications. Um, if they think that the person died of natural causes and there was no foul play, but they're just not sure what happened, um, they're quite likely to put something like heart disease is a very common one. Um, because it, it is a common cause of death and it's not something that's going to get investigated. Can you talk me through some of the history of how causes of death have been recorded? Because this is very interesting. Where does the practice begin, so say, in Europe? Yeah, so the emergence of documenting causes of death came out um, during infectious disease pandemics. Um, and it started in Milan um, in the 1400s. And this was right after the Black Death had wiped out about a third of Europe. So, you know, infectious disease was very important for society at the time, as, of course, it is for us today as well. And so it was important to know how many people were dying and where they were dying to try to track the spread of this disease. So death records um, recorded, you know, who was dying and what of, uh, but very often, particularly when they moved over into the UK, the early records were just did they die of an infectious disease, you know, the plague that they were interested in, or of something else. We weren't, they weren't at that time interested in documenting all the different kinds of causes. Um, then later it became recognised that actually having some of this information could be really great for public health importance, knowing why people died, what age people died, tracking different demographic relationships between mortality. Um, and so it was always kind of formed with this public health importance in mind, trying to figure out what was causing people's deaths um, with the aim to uh, to moderate or to um, prevent future deaths by intervening on these causes. 
Um, and that's still why we document causes of death. But of course, the way we tend to die has changed a lot. So back when infectious disease was the primary cause of death, uh, it probably did make a lot of sense to just document a single underlying cause uh, because these, these infectious diseases um, would occur. People would tend to die quite quickly after they were infected. Um, and you could trace a chain of events from the underlying cause to the immediate cause over quite a short period of time. Uh, these days, um, the amount of deaths by infectious disease is declined incredibly. Um, it's still continuing to decline. This is even with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and instead, most people are dying from non-communicable diseases, uh, which are often chronic conditions. And those chronic conditions they can last for a very long time. So you can have the underlying cause that can be years old. Um, and in that intervening time, there's often a lot of comorbidity. There's other kinds of causes that are also going on in someone's body and they can interact with the underlying cause and the, the causal chain leading to death becomes quite complex. Uh, so this is a reason that perhaps the way that we document causes of death now isn't serving us quite as well as when they first initiated during infectious disease pandemics. The World Health Organization describes cause of death as, here's the quote, the disease or injury that initiated the train of morbid events leading directly to death or the circumstances of the accident or violence which produced the fatal injury. Given what we've been talking about, how satisfactory is that definition held to be in, in the medical community today? Um, so I think, you know, if, if the WHO are looking to identify first of all they're interested in the underlying cause because that's the thing that's the most most able to intervene on and prevent for future deaths and so the, the immediate cause isn't so useful these are the things that happen just before someone dies they're quite hard to prevent and intervene on uh, but these underlying causes that initiate the chain of events they are more important in that sense um, I don't think there's anything really wrong with that definition per se, except the stipulation that there should just be a single underlying cause. This seems to be the problem and quite a lot of source of error and disagreement. Uh, because these underlying causes often occur so far back in time, um, there's a lot of reciprocal interactions with other things, a lot of things that can occur in a complicated way over a long period of time. And so the, the current WHO guidelines to just document a single cause seems to be more of the issue. But you've written about how the WHO explicitly prioritises COVID-19 as a cause of death in cases where there are multiple comorbidities. Why do they do that? And what are perhaps the consequences of that prioritisation? Yeah, so it's interesting. The WHO do recognise to some extent that there are potentially multiple underlying causes of death. And so they have a section in the ICD, which is um, that provides the guidelines for documenting causes of death for uh, special instructions in, under some circumstances for documenting the underlying causes of death. Um, and those special instructions, they do relate to COVID-19, but it's not just COVID-19. There's lots of other things in there, um, lots of infectious diseases in particular. And some of those guidelines are that if this particular cause is present, whether it's COVID-19 or monkeypox or influenza, then that must be the underlying cause. You can't have anything else that's the underlying cause if you think that's present and contributed to the death. Um, what's kind of interesting there is that there are other, it's not for all infectious diseases. So you can have um, HIV, for example, um, as a cause of death on the death certificate, but it can be caused by something else. So there might be something else that's the underlying cause, which might be, uh, it can include things like surgery or um, drug abuse or ways that people contracted the HIV, uh, whereas that doesn't occur for things like COVID-19 or, or monkeypox. Um, so it looks like with these special instructions, 
there's something about these particular kinds of infectious diseases that the WHO are trying to prioritise. Um, and they're actually quite explicit that they're prioritising this for public health reasons. They're trying to accurately document how many times COVID-19, say, contributes towards death uh, because COVID-19 is of great public health importance um, and something we want to learn a lot about um, and document so that we can intervene on and, and prevent it. Uh, but it gets into this, this whole debate in the philosophy of science about this entangling of values with facts and objectivity when we're documenting science. So um, you might want to ask, I mean, first of all, if you accept the premise that you should document things, you should prioritise things of public health importance, there's good evidence that COVID-19 reciprocally interacts with cancer. And you might have a patient who had cancer for a long time, um, then contracted COVID-19, and the COVID-19 made the cancer worse. And the cancer therapies also made the COVID-19 worse. And then this patient died. Um, in these cases, the WHO would recommend that you put COVID-19 as the cause of death. Uh, but you might also want to say that, well, the cancer had been around longer. That could be the underlying cause. And that cancer is also of public health importance. We also want to be documenting how many people die of cancer because we want to put in, you know, more funding or research or public health in initiatives to prevent cancer. Uh, so you're kind of in the in these guidelines faced with these decisions about what we value um, and what are the best things to prioritise for the, for public health goods. Um, and I think that's a very tricky thing to try to answer. What about old age? That's an interesting one because I, I I was interested to read that Queen Elizabeth's recently issued death certificate gave old age as as the cause of her death. That's kind of a weird one. It, it strikes me as a little bit like putting being mortal as the cause of death. And there is an academic debate around whether ageing should count as, as a disease or a cause of death. Well, what are the outlines of that debate? Yeah, so this is a very controversial one, old age. Um, and you're right, you know, you could almost as easily say being born is a cause of death because, of course, for us to die, we have to be born. Um, so there's quite a lot of people who think that old age should not be used as a cause of death. And, in fact, in the latest... ICD revision. So this is this um, document that specifies all the different diagnostic causes that there can be. Um, there wasn't introduced a new code, which is age-associated declining capacity. So it kind of relates to old age. Uh, but there's also been strong recommendations not to use that for a cause of death. So there are some codes in this manual which you can use for diagnostic purposes, but they're not appropriate for using as causes of death. Um, and, you know, some of the reasons for not using it as a cause of death is, of course, we, we all grow old. Um, so it's maybe relying on this kind of normality assumption. We don't want to put down things that are very normal. There's also worries that if we think of old age as a disease, then there's going to be a lot of stigma um, towards old people. And we, there already is, of course, ageism and stigma. Um, and also, if old age is considered a cause of death, that other important causes are going to be overlooked. And again, this comes back to that public health importance of documenting these other causes and figuring out what these other preventable um, causes of death might be. But then on the other side of the debate, there are people who think that, yes, old age fits all these criteria. Um, there are increasingly good, better biomarkers for old age, which seem to fit the kind of biomarkers that we like to find when we're diagnosing disease. Um, and there are lots of aspects of old age that seem to fit the classifications of disease when it comes to um, decline and physical capacity. Um, so there's this this still discussion and debate about, well, two things. First of all, is old age a disease? And, you know, some people think we can start to develop geroprotective drugs uh, to treat old age like it is a disease. Um, and then secondly, even if it's not a disease, um, would it be a good candidate for causes of death? 
Kate Lynch. She's a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sydney. And as I mentioned earlier, Kate was on the program a couple of years ago talking about genetic determinism, and you can find a link to that conversation on our webpage. And of course, you've been listening to The Philosopher's Zone. Follow us via the ABC Listen app. And if you would like to yell at me personally, my name is David Rutledge and you can find me on Twitter at David P Zone. Thanks for your company. Bye for now. Listener.